Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show, here on True North on this Thursday, September 28th, wrapping up another week of this program. And boy, has it been a busy week. We're going to talk a little bit more about the fallout of the House of Commons recognition of a Nazi veteran a little bit later on in the program. And I actually wanted to delve into a topic that I kind of just broached a little bit yesterday on the show, which is why Canada has historically been so soft on Nazi war criminals. This is not just an isolated incident. This isn't just an aberration. Canada actually had for several decades a reputation as being very soft on this very issue, and it was a reputation around the world. So we'll delve into that a little bit more with a gentleman from B'nai B'rith, also, the story that I talked about that I did yesterday on how Christia Freeland really, really, really should have known better. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I thought that people might be able to use a bit of a break from Nazi gate in the opening moments of the show. I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to gate it. That's like the most insufferable thing that journalists do. They call everything a gate. There's, you know, the Watergate, of course, was the original gate. And then there's, you know, deflate gate and inflate gate and pork gate and milk gate. I don't know. Everything's a gate, gate, gate. That's that's the real scandal that everything's a gate. We'll call it gate, gate. But uh, nevertheless, I do want to shift a little bit over to Alberta. We haven't talked about Alberta politics in a little while. The Alberta government today is, it's kind of interesting, declaring war on the federal government's electricity regulations. Premier Danielle Smith and Energy Minister Rebecca Schultz, both of whom we've had on the show on a number of occasions, have started an ad campaign. I think they're announcing it right now, actually, where they're telling people about the dangers of what the federal government is doing. So Alberta is looking to Justin Trudeau and saying, we are not going to stand for this, and Albertans are not going to stand for this. So that's been quite interesting to watch. But there was also a clip yesterday from a press conference that Danielle Smith and Health Minister Adriana Lagrange did that has been going viral, as they say. Now, this was actually an announcement about the charges laid against a food service provider in Calgary related to the E. coli outbreak. But it uh, became something else when one reporter decided to ask the really burning question on everyone's mind in Alberta, by which I mean no one's mind but his. Federal immunization panel has recommended that folks get their COVID booster this fall. Just curious if we have a sense of when that's going to be available here in Alberta and if the province is going to be launching any kind of campaign to encourage people to do that. And I guess personally, if, if you yourself are planning to get the shot. I'll let um, Minister LaGrange tell you. I think we're just, we, I think we're just uh, um, preparing the final details on the just press release on that. Before, you, before that, would you be getting the shot? Look, I'm, I'm a healthy person. I, uh, I tend to take care of my immune system. And I'm, I believe this is something I should talk about with my doctor, not, politi not uh, media. Sorry. Um, thank you for the question. And, and yes, we just uh, received information from the federal government in terms of when we will be seeing those uh, vaccination, um, those vaccines available to the province. So we're working through the process. Um, all, as always, um, Albertans uh, do have access for flu, um, influenza, RSV, etc. All of the various uh, vaccines that are available. So once we have that information, we'll get it out as soon as possible as part of the normal course of business typically vaccines are available the end of of um, 
uh, September, beginning of October. So we anticipate that information coming very shortly. And just the same question to you, Minister Lagrange. Do you plan to get the shot? Uh, it depends which shot you're talking about. Like I'm, I'm, I'm looking. <laughs> I, I'm very healthy as well. Um, I have a very healthy immune system, and uh, you know what? I, I also believe that this is a personal decision for individuals to make. Um, I, I will look at that uh, as as time progresses and what my my journey is. But again, this is a, a personal decision. Pe people have to make it for themselves, for their children, and we respect the decisions that people make. Sean is making fun of me in our uh, show chat channel right now. He thought I was making a terrible pun when I said going viral because of COVID. No, I meant like going viral on the internet, Sean. Come on, get with the hip lingo. I don't know if going viral is hip. Actually, I've never been hip in my life, so uh, no reason to start now. But it was an unintentional pun, I assure you. Uh, this is, I think, a very important point. So what we heard from Premier Danielle Smith and Health Minister Adriana Lagrange. Some people are taking from it that they don't intend to get boosted at all, which I would say is probably a fair assumption, but I think Danielle Smith's point here is an incredibly valid one. This is none of the media's business. And I, I think it was actually quite something when politicians started making it everyone's business. And when we introduced this litmus test into politics that we and into society, that we decide and define someone's worth based on whether they've had this particular vaccine and how many boosters they've gotten. And now, I mean, you may be able to tell that it probably tells you something about someone if you find out that they've had, you know, their 19th booster or whatever, and then you could uh, perhaps suggest that maybe they're an Ottawa school trustee. But the point of this is that we are looking at a situation in which there is the closest I've seen from a politician on a return to normal post-COVID, because it used to be back in the good old days, by which I mean 2019 and earlier, that I didn't know my doctor's political views, I didn't need to know my doctor's political views, and I didn't need to know if anyone around me had received a vaccine for whatever, whether it was measles, mumps, rubella, COVID, or HPV, or anything else. And I loved that. I loved when it was just a personal choice that you made and it was none of anyone else's business. But then politicians started to take personal pride in how many of their citizens they could convince or later coerce to get the vaccine. So they started just, you know, sitting down, rolling up their sleeves, getting this shot, that shot, this booster, that booster. And then the new booster comes out. So they've got to sit down and get that. And now, I mean, they're making them available for people who want them. I think the fact that the health minister and premier are not telling people to do it. They weren't even the ones talking about it. It was some reporter that said, hey, what are you doing for people that want it? It's there for those who want it. And for those who don't, they have no obligation to get it. And I think this is absolutely the way it should be. And I, you know, I don't even think a lot of the really alarmist types that we see in political leadership positions or running public health departments are really trying as hard anymore because I think they know that most people are just rolling their eyes. And the COVID vaccine has basically become like the flu shot, where if you really want it, maybe you'll do it. If you're somewhere where it's being offered to you, maybe you'll get it. But it's not this thing that you need to do that your existence depends on. And 
you know, we've seen time and time again over the last three years when the goalposts have moved and, you know, it was two weeks to flatten the curve. It was get your two doses and then your third. And then, you know, Emmanuel Macron, I think it was, was saying that we should all just get boosted every three months. I don't know if he's been keeping up with that himself, but I think generally speaking, a lot of these people are prepared to let it die on the order paper. And when Daniel Smith responds, I'm healthy, my immune system's good, I'm going to talk about this with my doctor and not with the media. That is the point. And, and, you know, for Minister LaGrange to follow up with a similar answer and instill in people that this is a personal choice. The government of Alberta has no care whatsoever about whether or not you get the COVID vaccine or if I'm reading between the lines, any other vaccines. That is the question of choice that should have been the guiding principle throughout the entirety of the pandemic. Now, I should say, speaking of Danielle Smith, a bit of an announcement to make. I teased this earlier in the week, whether it was yesterday or Tuesday, I can't recall. But uh, you may recall True North is hosting its first ever live and in-person event. This is taking place on October 21st in Calgary, and it is going to be a lot of fun. We'll have lots of the True North personalities you know and hopefully love. I'll be there. Harrison Faulkner will be there. Rupa Subramanya, Rachel Emanuel, who is now on maternity leave but is returning just for us, and I should say just for you. So you'll want to go to that. And we were originally the A-listers, but we've been demoted a little bit on the website because we have a new A-lister, our keynote speaker, which has just been announced right this second by me, is Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Yes, Danielle Smith. I, I, I left an applause break, even though I can't hear you. But Danielle Smith is going to be the keynote speaker at that event. And we also have some more folks we're going to be announcing as well. But if you want to come out and hear Premier Danielle Smith speak, she's always been a big supporter of independent media and of True North and has always made time for us when we've asked. And as you know, I have worked with her over the years before her return to politics. We were colleagues on the same radio station in Calgary, and I was actually her guest host, which uh, my joke that I'll have to retire because I've used it like four times now is that I'm actually, uh, based on that arrangement, the acting premier of Alberta when she's indisposed, although I'm not sure the Constitution of Canada necessarily agrees with me. But nevertheless, you can get all the details at truenorthevents.ca, truenorthevents.ca. And I hope to see many of you there. I suspect there might be a, a bit of a, a flurry of ticket sales now. So because we have only a limited number available, I would encourage you to get in now if you want to come out and have a good time. And we're going to try to make politics a little bit fun and interesting. I realize that sometimes it can get very dark and dismal and dirgy. We're going to keep it fun. We've got a few tricks up our sleeve for you, and I think you'll have a great deal of fun, as I certainly hope to as well, putting it on. So I'm not really putting it on. I'm just showing up. My colleagues are the ones doing all the heavy lifting on that. But I think it was interesting, and it timed out very well with Danielle Smith saying what she did. I've seen in the comments some people that are really quite wowed by this because, you know, Danielle Smith came in and she followed a government under Jason Kenney that was a very popular government among conservatives when he was first elected. He did this uniting the right thing. And then COVID came and, and COVID was the great derailer of politicians and their agendas. I mean, you look at Ontario. I ran as a, a to be a member of the Ontario legislature in 2018 and had I been elected, I would have been, I mean, my hope would be that I would have found the, the courage and backbone to be kicked out of caucus like Roman Babber and other folks as well, and Belinda Carajalios, another example. 
But Doug Ford, I think without COVID, probably goes through that first term without much controversy, viewed somewhat favorably by conservatives. Jason Kenney, I know there were already some frustrations, especially on the Western Independence file, but I think he gets through his term, uh, certainly without the leadership review coming at the time that it did. I think he would have survived a vote like that had it not been for COVID. So because of that, there's been this correction, and that correction is what's brought Danielle Smith in Alberta. That correction, I think, is what's brought Pierre Polyev in the federal environment, and I think that's a very important thing that we need to keep an eye on here. I did want to talk a little bit more about the recognition last week of Yaroslav Hunka, the Ukrainian veteran with the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division in the SS. This is a story that has brought tremendous shame and embarrassment on Canada. We had Justin Trudeau yesterday issue a half-hearted apology. It wasn't an apology on behalf of his government, but an apology on behalf of Canada and Canadians, even though I can safely say I did not invite a Nazi to stand and receive a standing ovation in the House of Commons. That was not me at all. So I don't actually shoulder a bit of that apology. But it has brought about, I think, a bigger discussion in this country, certainly one that I've uh, been aware of with my studies on Holocaust history, and that is how Canada for many years had a reputation as being a haven for Nazi war criminals. This was something that renowned Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal pointed out. It was something that ultimately led to a report being commissioned in the 80s called the Deschain Commission. And this report was not nearly as forceful as it needed to have been, and I think received a lot of criticism, but none more than the fact that the second part of the report, which actually had very detailed information about Nazis in Canada, has never in the last 37 years seen the light of day. There have been calls, notably from Jewish advocacy groups, to release it. Christian Freeland was asked this week whether the government would reopen it and just gave that very dancing around answer of, well, you know, we're sorry and we have to, you know, look into everything and didn't really address this issue head on. Uh, the challenge is that if you are talking about justice, which is really what motivates people that want to unearth the identities and names of, of Nazi war criminals who fled prosecution, it becomes more and more difficult, if not impossible, with each passing year. The people that were around are, are very old. Most of them have died. And even the ones who are still alive will oftentimes find a treatment is uh, given to them specifically because of their age that does not pursue justice. This is a case we've seen time and time again. But do we have a right as Canadians to see this report? That is a very key question that I hope we get some answers on. I want to talk about this a little bit further with Richard Robertson, who is the research manager at B'nai B'rith and joins me now. Richard, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. So just to set the stage here, I mean, the Deschain Commission is not something that a lot of people have heard of before this week. It's not something that I spent a lot of time on. I'm certainly familiar with it. But why was the second part never released in the first place? Was it just a, about privacy and not wanting to accuse people in, in print of, of complicity and very heinous crimes? Oh, we may have lost uh, Richard. Can you still hear me, Richard? 
All right. Either he is thinking very, very carefully about what he's going to say, or we had a technical issue there. We'll get him reconnected in just a moment's time here. My uh, my apologies for those glitches. But just to give the, the, the number here, 1986, that was when this report came out. And there were really what sparked it was a member of parliament had actually made the accusation in the House of Commons that Joseph Mengele, the Nazi butcher, had found haven in Canada. Now, Mengele had actually attempted to enter Canada, and he was not, uh, to the best of anyone's knowledge, in Canada at this time. But it did raise the discussion, and it raised the debate about whether Canada had been far too permissive. Now, this is a country that slammed the door in the faces of Jewish refugees after the Holocaust. Canada, uh, you know, you may have read Irving Abella's uh, fabulous and very authoritative book on this, None is Too Many, a a title inspired by, you know, basically one immigration gatekeeper's uh, approach to how Jewish refugees were to be treated, which is that they are not Canada's problem. And it was a tremendously shameful part of history. And it wasn't just that we were closed to immigrants in general, because after the war, Canada had no issue was being very lax with opening the door to people who had been Nazis. There was not nearly the scrutiny there should have been on people's identities. And even after the fact, when we learned that people had misrepresented, when we learned that people had misrepresented uh, where they served, who they did, all of that, when we knew that for a fact, Canada had the option to go after these people, to prosecute them, and oftentimes chose not to or did it in very half-hearted ways. And if you look even after the Duchesne Commission report, one of the real the, the real takeaways is that there wasn't really any major prosecution that took place. There were a few attempts. One was acquitted, a few were withdrawn, and, and ultimately it just sort of died on the vine. And as a result, it's not something we really talk about all that often as a country. And the case of Yaroslav Hanka, who I should say, I have no evidence whatsoever, and I'm not making a claim that he was complicit or involved in any war crimes or any criminality. The SS itself was a criminal organization. This was upheld by Nuremberg, and the 14th Waffen Division was an SS unit. I believe we have uh, Richard Robertson back from B'nai B'rith here. Uh, Richard, we'll, we'll try this again. Why was the second part of this report never released? That's a really good question, Andrew, and it's one whose answer remains unclear at this time. I believe you had uh, referenced privacy earlier, and it's highly likely that uh, in the 1980s, 86 to be exact, when the Duchesne Commission was releasing its findings, that there was privacy concerns, whether or not they were due or undue, for the members of the uh, Nazi regime or associates of the Nazi regime who were implicated in the report. When you look at the SS, I mean, it's important to note that the SS is not frontline German soldiers that had nothing to do with the Holocaust that were just fighting in in France. The SS was a very specific case. The SS was, as a whole, classified as a a criminal organization with war crimes at, at Nuremberg. Why did Canada really carve out, it seems like, an exception to its policy on SS soldiers with the members of this unit, with Ukrainian SS? soldiers. 
Oh, I believe we have lost Richard once again. We'll, we'll give it one more try. If not, we'll uh, definitely move on from this. But I hope we can get him back on because B'nai B'rith and uh, Sija, even before this whole business with Yaroslav Hanka, back in, I think it was April, we had uh, Jewish groups that were standing up and, and saying, and I, I mentioned on the show earlier this week, Michael Barrett, who is a conservative member of parliament, had introduced a motion before one of the committees. I, I can't remember which one it was. And it was a motion for the government to release this. And, and so far as I can tell, I've not been able to see whether that motion was ever voted on. So either the, the motion never ended up making it to a vote or uh, the motion was passed and the government just decided not to do anything with it. And this would be a very easy win for the government, a very easy win for the government right now to come out and say, absolutely, we believe transparency is important. We're going to release this report. Like, I, I don't understand why that's not a slam dunk unless there are legal considerations, whether it's privacy law or something else, or what I suspect is that releasing the report will allow people like me, allow people like you to look and find that there were a whole bunch of names of people that the government knew were ex-Nazis and chose to do nothing about. And that, I believe, is the only rationale, the only compelling rationale for why the government would not want to release this, is that it would show a failure by the Canadian government, a failure over successive governments over many decades, a failure to deal with this problem despite having the evidence. And, and I mentioned Simon Wiesenthal earlier. Simon Wiesenthal made it very easy. He wasn't asking for the government to launch any investigations. He handed the data. He did, he did all the work himself as a Jewish man who cared deeply about this, about justice, and he handed it to governments. He handed it to Canada, to the US, to Germany, all of these governments, and it was upon them to take the steps to put that into action. And there was a piece in 1997 in the New York Times which delved into this, a, an article that showed uh, very significantly how Canada had been, at the time, earning a reputation around the world as being a haven for Nazi war criminals. Not exactly the reputation you want. And this Yaroslav Hunka business has, I think, reinvigorated that very discussion. And I want to go back to uh, what Christian Freeland said yesterday. You have to hear just how little of anything resembling something even close to an answer there is when she's asked if the government will reopen this report. Calls by B'nai B'rith to reopen a report by the Duchesne Commission so that Canadians can know how many veterans who fought with the Nazis are here in our country. Um, will the government do so? And what is your response to that? I think, you know, let, let me just start uh, by reiterating, and I don't think it can be said too many times, uh, how hurtful for so many people in Canada and around the world uh, what happened was and has been and continues to be. As uh, MPs, in our capacity as MPs, uh, it's important for appropriate next steps in the House to be taken, and I think that is our immediate focus. And as a government, we're going to be very 
thoughtful about any further steps that need to be taken. As you heard there, not really addressing the question head on. The point that I, I mentioned a moment ago is that I feel the only possible reason that the government is not wanting to release this is because it will just reveal how much information the government had and still opted not to prosecute former Nazis. And I, again, it's a theory on my part, but it's the only one that I can really see. Uh, we'll try Richard Robertson from B'nai B'nai one more time. And I, I don't blame you for this, Richard. It's uh, technology. It happens sometimes. But, uh, you know, do, do you see another explanation for why they wouldn't release it than that, that it just highlights government inaction on this file over decades? Yeah, and the troubling thing, Andrew, is that it is over a series of decades. This has been an ongoing saga, which our um, organization has been directly involved in since the 1980s. Uh, B'nai B'rith was represented by David Matus at the Duchesne Commission in the 1980s and has been advocating uh, with increasing vigor uh, for the last number of years to finally uh, give Canadians what they're due, which is access to this information. One of the challenges here, and I, I alluded to this earlier, is that, you know, with each passing year, it becomes harder and harder to, to get justice. Uh, I mean, there was the Helmet Overlander case not far from me in, in southwestern Ontario, where uh, we had a guy who had served in a, a very brutal Nazi unit, irrespective of, of what his individual actions were, which there's debate about. He lied when coming to Canada, which, regardless of what you've done, is the, the slam dunk. And it took decade, I mean, like a decade and a half, I think, of litigation. Uh, he was ordered deported, overturned, over deported, citizenship stripped, all of that. And in the end of it, he dies in Canada because the process when you get to a certain age is just to prolong, prolong, prolong so nothing can happen. I, I mean, here we have, I mean, Yaroslav Hunka last week is, is 98 years old. That's probably going to be about what any of these other folks you, you'd get are here. So I, do you think the government's hiding behind that in a way? And that, you know, wait until there's really no action that it could take because everyone's dead. Well, it's one thing to, you know, refrain from extraditing an individual because of their age. And that's an entirely different question. Uh, but it's another thing to deny Canadians access to their past. Uh, with each passing day, we learn we lose the opportunity to seek justice, as you discuss. But we also learn lose the opportunity to educate as time continues to pass is, to pass the amount of analysis that we can do the relevancy of the material which is presently being denied to canadians uh, arguably loses some of its value uh, while we still have both survivors and the persecutors uh, from the, the the era of the nazi regime alive it's it's quintessential that we have access to this information not only so that we can seek justice so that that, that we can provide those few survivors who remain with uh, some sense of confidence that their nation is doing the right thing why did the government, it seems, kind of carve out an exemption to its approach on Nazis seeking to move to Canada with the Ukrainian veterans? Why, why did they get kind of a pass effectively? That's an interesting question, Andrew. Uh, one whose answers likely uh, exist within the documents whose... Uh, um, on redaction, we are presently calling for. I think that there's a logical uh, answer, which is that uh, there was a large Ukrainian population in Canada at that time. There was uh, documents uh, open to the public from the British government in the 2000s, I believe in 2005, that suggest that uh, the British government housed 
a large portion of the Galician division of Ukrainian POWs, and that they were looking to send them either to Canada or back to Germany. There is really no justification or no known answer as to why Canada ended up taking uh, these uh, Ukrainian POWs in at the time and providing them with refuge. Uh, we do believe, though, that um, portions of the uh, commission and of the documents made available to commission, principally the Rodal report, which has only been released in redacted form, do um, further explain the rationale behind Canada's policy making when it came to the admittance of Nazis. So these are uh, questions that we hope to be able to answer once uh, we successfully have uh, this archive open to the public. I think anyone who's ever studied Holocaust history and, and post-war history knows that most of the world, I think, failed uh, when it came to the, the obligation to, to take in Jewish refugees. There were very few uh, people that came. I mean, China, oddly, did, did very well in, in its efforts to help Jews during the Holocaust. But Canada slammed the door in Jewish refugees' faces and, and you know, ultimately later on became very lax on allowing in former Nazis. And I, I'm curious if Canada... It is worse than everyone else, or if everyone w was equally bad, based on, on what we know now with the benefit of hindsight? Uh, I would say that uh, when you uh, started by commenting that the world failed, that the world did fail. Um, however, as a Canadian organization representing grassroots Canadian Jewry and mandated to combat uh, racism, hatred, and anti-Semitism here in Canada in all of its forms, our focus is on Canada. And Canada failed. The moniker "None is too many" symbolizes Canada's failure to admit uh, Jewish refugees seeking to escape Nazi persecution in the 30s, in the 40s, to this country. Uh, what transpired on our shores was unacceptable, and we are doing an additional disservice to the victims of the Nazis, those who we sent back to the concentration camps when we. Uh, admit their persecutors to our country, and then ultimately fail to learn from that. Right now, we have a, a spotlight on this issue in Canada and, you know, once again, around the world. Are you more optimistic now that you'll be able to get what you want and get this report unredacted now in, in light of all of this uh, than you've had success uh, or the lack of success you've had in, in recent years on this and, and even going back to the 80s? I think that optimism is a strong term, Andrew, but we're hopeful. And if a, an often a misplaced in politics, if a, if a silver lining can come from uh, this uh, parliamentary debacle, and that silver lining is that the Duchesne Commission is released its reports and its, its reports are released in their entirety, and Canada's Holocaust records are open to the public, then that would be a, a small victory for us. That's been a long time coming. Uh, it will also be bittersweet as this is something that uh, as representatives of Canada's Jewish community, we've been advocating for vigorously for a number of years now. And sadly, our, uh, our efforts have fallen on deaf ears. So for it to take a member of the Waffen SS being uh, granted a standing and ovation in our parliament for this to be given uh, what it's deserved, uh, that is bittersweet. Yeah, and I think that's a, a very fair way of putting it. I'm glad we were able to uh, sort out the connection issues. Richard Robertson, Research Manager with B'nai B'rith Canada. Good to talk to you, Richard. Thanks for coming on today. 
You as well, Andrew. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. I'm so glad that worked out. And nothing worse than when I'm looking forward to a conversation and the technical issues prevent it from happening. But sometimes it's just a matter of changing your network. So next time you have a Zoom call that drops off, uh, just switch to another network. Or if uh, conversely, you're trying to get out of a work Zoom meeting, you can switch to the bad network and then blame those issues as well. But you didn't get that advice from me. I mentioned that yesterday, Justin Trudeau did like the thing that I joke about. Like I literally joked about this on the show probably on Monday, maybe Tuesday, the thing that Justin Trudeau does whenever he's caught and it becomes a learning opportunity for everyone. He's in blackface. Well, we all need to do better about racism. He uh, gropes a reporter in BC. Well, we all need to learn more about boundaries. He vacations with the Agacon. Well, we all need to take a look in the mirror and wonder what it is to be friends and all that. And lo and behold, doesn't he issue an apology, not on his own behalf, but on behalf of Canadians. And while he's at it, he throws in a little bit of a jab at Russia inexplicably. I also want to reiterate how deeply sorry Canada is for the situation this put President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation in. It is extremely troubling to think that this egregious error is being politicized by Russia and its supporters to provide false propaganda about what Ukraine is fighting for. Friday's joint session was about what Canada stands for. It's about Canada apologizing. Canada is sorry. Justin Trudeau's not sorry. Canada is sorry. So you as a presumably Canadian watching this, you're like, well, hang on. I, I didn't do it. I, I didn't I didn't stand up for the guy. I didn't invite the guy. Why? Why am I sorry for it? But this is the I mean, the, 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 the successes are one individually. The failures are born collectively. That is the Justin Trudeau mantra, if ever there was one. Uh, Pierre Polyev uh, saw through this yesterday in the House of Commons. He saw, tried to get a personal apology from Justin Trudeau. It, well, didn't really work out. Mr. Speaker, it was the personal responsibility of the Prime Minister to invite President Zelensky to the floor of this House of Commons. It was his personal responsibility to make sure it was a diplomatic success. It was his personal responsibility to continue to lead the government that has the security, intelligence, and diplomatic agencies that could have and should have vetted all individuals who were present and recognized. Yet this Prime Minister allowed for a monumental, unprecedented and global shame to unfold in this chamber. Will he take personal responsibility for this shame and personally apologize on behalf of himself? The Right Honourable Prime Minister. On behalf of all of us in this House, I would like to present unreserved apologies for what took place on Friday and to President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation for the position they were put in. For all of us who were present to have unknowingly recognized this individual was a terrible mistake and a violation of the memory of those who suffered grievously at the hands of the Nazi regime. 
That is, it's just great. Will, will you personally apologize? Let me apologize on behalf of, I mean, that one was at least on behalf of everyone in the House of Commons. That wasn't the apology on behalf of Canada. So uh, that was an apology diffused only 338 ways. Uh, the other apology was diffused like 37 million ways. So that's basically where things are going here. I, I've mentioned this point throughout the week, and I, I want to delve into it in a bit more detail if I can in these closing moments that of all the MPs in the House of Commons who stood up and applauded without really twigging to the, wait a minute, World War II fought against Russia, something doesn't add up there. The one who would have known was Christian Freeland. Now, this is the deputy prime minister of this country, and people may not be fond of what she stands for or how she presents herself on number a number of issues, but she is an incredibly smart woman. She's incredibly well-educated. She knows her stuff, and she knows Ukraine. She knows Ukraine's history. She knows World War II as it relates to Ukraine. She knows Soviet history. She spent time in the Soviet Union. She's got a pad in Ukraine. She knows this back to front. She speaks the language. She knows the players. When you've seen that photo of her hugging Zelensky, you see how much of an affinity she has for Ukraine. And I think many Canadians would encourage her to move to Ukraine and take up service in the government there. That might be helpful on some files in Canada. Nevertheless, she knows this. So if there's one person in the House of Commons who lacks the deniability to say, well, how are we to know? It would be her. Now, we've learned a little bit more in recent days. One thing that jumps out is that Yaroslav Hunka's family donated $30,000 to the University of Alberta for an endowment fund in Yaroslav and his wife Margaret's name. Now, $30,000, as far as university endowments go, is not a huge amount of money. Some of the endowments to the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies were in the millions of dollars. But it's not something that most Canadians could do, to write a check for $30,000 to a university. So the fact that this happened suggests to me that his family probably was somewhat known in the Ukrainian community, at least somewhat. I don't know if Krista Freeland knew him or if they knew Krista Freeland, but I do know that she's been involved with the Institute of Ukrainian Studies, as had this family. So perhaps they've crossed paths, perhaps they haven't. I don't know. But what I do know is that Christian Freeland knows this chapter of history very intimately. And I, I've done some digging on this this week. And I found that she had in her youth, now she was 18 years old at the time. I think that needs to be known. She contributed to a journal, to an encyclopedia of Ukraine that was published in 1986, a very seminal piece. And she was a contributor to this. Now, the editor, the editor of this encyclopedia is a known Nazi collaborator, a known Nazi collaborator. Now, I should qualify that by pointing out that he was deceased at the time the encyclopedia was published. Christopher Freeland likely never, ever worked with him, but it was based on his original work in Ukraine, Volod Volodymyr uh, Kubayovich. And my pronunciation notwithstanding, he was a Nazi collaborator, an anti-Semite, a proponent of ethnic cleansing, but a scholar whose work founded, whose work basically served as the foundation of the Encyclopedia of Ukraine, which was a, a product of the Canadian Institute for Ukrainian Studies. 
Christian Freeland was a contributor to this. Now, her office did something it has not done in years, which has responded to me when I asked them for some details on this. And they told me that she was a contributor to only a few sections, none of which had anything to do with the particular issue at hand, which is the Waffen, the Waffen 14th SS Division. They said that she contributed to the entries Hayfields, Horse Breeding, the jute hemp industry and insurance, not anything to do with the Second World War, which is plausible enough. Again, she was an 18-year-old research assistant, but she nonetheless contributed to this encyclopedia, which if you look into it, has a complete whitewash of the Ukrainian SS division's role in World War II. For example, this SS division is referred to as being the nucleus of Ukrainian independence. They're called a German force instead of being part of the Nazi forces. They're spoken about as really this germ of Ukrainian nationalism and not as a tool that was very deliberately chosen by German command, by Nazi command, and uh, fondly viewed by Heinrich Himmler, one of the most evil Nazis to have existed during this period. You see there the Division Galicienne, that's the uh, Galicia Division, as a nucleus of a future army in an independent Ukraine. This encyclopedia, which was published 40 years after World War II ended, makes no reference to the finding of the SS as a criminal organization at Nuremberg. It makes no reference to the accusations of war crimes against Polish civilians that have been leveled against this group. It makes no reference whatsoever to the fact that it was under Nazi command. Now, again, I am not saying Christian Freeland wrote this entry or edited it or was involved in this part of it. I'm saying that for the entirety of her adult life, she has steeped herself in the history of Ukraine and knows full well the intricacies and complexities of this issue. And I spoke to a gentleman who was her advisor on this, who was the, the research supervisor for Christian Freeland. And he had said that it was a tremendous shame what happened in Parliament on Friday. He said Ukrainians have had to reckon with their history. And the way they do that is not by standing up and applauding a Nazi. And that is something that Christian Freeland, better than anyone else, would have, and I suspect, did know full well. So with that, you can read the full details at tnc.news. I've got the report up there, and I'm very proud of this. And I should mention that donation that was made to the University of Alberta the school last night announced it would be returning. Now, whether that's fair or appropriate, I'll leave people to decide. But all of this has come about just because, uh, for whatever reason, we were told to look up to this man in the House of Commons and give a standing ovation. And I said earlier this week that I, there's a part of me that is unsettled by the effect this whole ha this all has on a family who has done nothing wrong, on people that only know of Yaroslav Hunka as a father and a grandfather, and now uh, have to see him live his final years on this earth uh, being maligned and denounced as a Nazi. But at the same time, people in that family should have understood the complexities of this. Yaroslav Hunka himself should have understood the complexity of this. And, and the fact that that has not happened has now set this huge chain of events in motion that, uh, as we were hearing earlier from our friend at Ben Abrith, may actually result in a bit more transparency 
than we've ever been able to have on this file in Canada. So we'll keep an eye peeled for that. Uh, one more plug before we go. True North Nation coming up October 21st in Calgary. The keynote speaker, which we just announced on this show, is none other than Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. So we look forward to that. We will see you all in Calgary and we will see you all on Monday. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.